and podcast is live. TikTok is going. We are good on Twitch and YouTube and Facebook. So in the main story for tonight, and this will be difficult because Bruins are currently in a game two for the NHL playoffs, so I'll be giving scoring updates throughout, but I really wanted to discuss what has been the question of the week, which is, is Boston racist? And I wanted to discuss how that conversation came about with Kyrie Irving in the Boston Celtics. And then also my own two cents on how do you measure a concept like is a city racist. But to start it off, let's hear from Kyrie Irving's press conference. This was May 26th. Give me one second as I... Gone. All right, let's try that again, Kyrie. In Boston, Uh, so... You know, I'm just looking forward to competing with my teammates and, um, you know, hopefully we can just keep it strictly basketball. You know, there's no belligerence or any racism going on, subtle racism and people yelling from the crowd. Um, but even if it is, it's part of the nature of the game and we're just going to focus on what we can control. Is it something you've experienced in Boston before? I'm not the only one that could attest to this, but it's just, you know, it, it won't... It, <laughs> it is what it is. Okay, so that was Kyrie Irving's statement leading up to Game 3, which would be his first game back to the Garden. And Jalen Brown, I thought, had a good uh, response to this kind of leading up to it. And then I'm going to update about what happened during Games 3 and 4, and then also my two cents. So Jalen Brown's comments to that was, however, I do not like the manner it was brought up, centering around a playoff game. The construct of racism, right? It's used as a crutch or an opportunity to execute a personal gain. I'm not saying that's the case, but I do think racism is bigger than basketball, and I do think racism is bigger than game three of the playoffs. Going further, the constructs and constraints of systematic racism in our school system, inequality in education, lack of opportunity, lack of housing, lack of affordable housing, lack of affordable health care, tokenism, the list goes on. And Jalen Brown does do a lot in the community of Boston in terms of working with local organizers and in terms of local politics. And his answer starts to set us off and addresses what to me is the main point, which is how do you look at issues like racism? And how do you measure if a city isn't, is not racist? So what ended up happening was the Celtics won game three Uh, Kyrie Irving was definitely shook from the crowd. The crowd booed him every time he touched the ball. And that is also what happened in game four. However, the Nets recovered. Kyrie recovered, I think put up 40, uh, stomped on the lucky logo in the middle. And while he was exiting, a drunken fan, I'm just assuming he was drunk, in his early 20s from, I think, Braintree, chucked a water ball at him, which is absolutely beyond the pale, inexcusable, that person will probably get a lifetime ban and maybe some sort of um, criminal consequences, we'll call them. Even though, again, as a prison abolitionist, I'm hoping this doesn't resort in the person being thrown in the cage. But anyway, and that thing kind of brought us back to Ukairi's incidents right after that. 
of having the water bottle thrown at him. And here's what he said. It's unfortunate that sports has come to this crossroads where you are seeing a lot of old ways come up. It's been that way in history in terms of entertainment, performance, and sports for a long period of time. Underlying racism is just treating people like they're in a human zoo, throwing stuff at people, saying things. There's a certain point where it gets too much to be too much. I called it out. I wanted to keep it strictly basketball, but people just feel very entitled over here. Again, referring to this as uh, Boston is a racist city. And the point that I wanted to bring up is how exactly do you measure it? Because what that generally means when you talk to most people and you ask them the question, is a city racist or is Boston racist? What they instantly jump to is what you're talking about is the people. They substitute it in their minds to the people of Boston are racist. And that is what maybe Kyrie was referring to, using measurements like the fans booing him and all of that. And if somebody has a question about why the fans are booing, I can go into that a little bit after. But what Jalen was getting at is looking at the actual structures of the city and using that to determine racism, not the individual actions of, let's say, this one drunk kid from Braintree, not the collective booze from a crowd, but some of the actual policies. And I just finished reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Kendi, and I think Kendi is really, really good on this in trying to determine is someone or is a place racist or anti-racist. Because there is no one, myself included, that can like look at an individual and tell you what is in their hearts and hearts, hearts of hearts, of are they, are they not racist. However, to judge a city, it's actually pretty easy. Judging a city, all you need to do is to look at the inequalities, the racial inequalities within that city. And then you can measure that against other cities. And the more you see racial inequality, the more racist your city is. And by that metric by does Boston have massive race disparities and are those being continually reinforced through our politics and our policies? The answer to that is unequivocally yes. Boston is a racist city. We have a 33-year life expectancy differential between being born poor and black in Roxbury being, versus being rich and white in the Back Bay. The Average wealth of a black family in Boston is $8. Compare that to the average wealth of a white family, which is closer to $200,000, $225,000. By every metric in terms of access to health care, our public education system, our public transportation system, Boston is a racist city, period, end of discussion. However, that is much different than saying the people of Boston are racist because in a simple or a child's understanding of politics, we live in a democracy, therefore the policies that are being promoted by that democracy must represent the will of the people, right? That follows a basic hypothesis. However, anyone who has spent any time looking at American politics realizes that we do not live in a democracy, that the will of the people is completely irrelevant to the politics and the policies that we promote. And so, my twist of it, to try to get people to understand it, is to roughly say that the policies are not a reflection of the people. The policies are a reflection of the power interests within that area. And so we have the most progressive, most diverse Boston City Council in our city's history. However, 
they continue to pass and promote policies which lead to racial inequality. Therefore, the Boston City Council is a racist institution. You can see that at our state house. Doesn't matter that it's a supermajority of the Democratic Party. The policies they pass continue to either maintain or to support racial inequality. That is why we have a racist state house. And those interests, nothing to do with the individuals, whether or not the individual city council people are racist or not, the individual state representatives are racist or not, but they are responding to the power dynamics of capital. And when you have one group of people that has the money, and that's getting a smaller, smaller, smaller group of people with the money, then everyone else, mostly people of color, black people, and poor whites, capital is going to continue to target and go for that small amount of people that have wealth, and that is mostly white people. Because of, again, a lot of the historical reasons, mostly has to do with housing policy. And so to, to end that segment of, is Boston a racist city? The answer is 100% yes, but it is not the people. It is the policies and the power interests that we promote. And so I hope that gives some level of solace to Celtics fans. Though the kid from Braintree is absolutely an idiot. I'm going to uh, take questions in a second because I see people making comments. And there's one other news story I want to quickly just talk about because I found it funny. And then we'll get to uh, the video I have from you, which is from a Boston City Council hearing, which is actually pretty good. Um, making fun of the kid from Braintree, that's funny. And the coastal protections, yes. Referring to basically the uh, Superior Court of Massachusetts said that the people have a right to the public access of our waterfronts. However, similar to the first segment, everything that we have done in our development, and by that I mean housing development, because housing is viewed as a commodity, a speculative property, an investment opportunity. We've allowed our waterfronts to be completely bought up by mostly LLCs, hedge funds, and private equity firms, and just kind of used as just cash reservoirs. There was a story recently of a former Saudi prince who just bought a bunch of condos in downtown Boston, and they've just been sitting empty, just using it as a way to store wealth and diversify their assets. And if that is your housing policy, Something tells me that um, climate change is not your, your first major concern. And if you're, you're watching on TikTok, can't say it enough, recommend you hop over to Twitch or YouTube to kind of see the, the visuals I have, but that's okay. It is still uh, one to two Islanders Bruins in the game. But the only other story, and I, I, t I spoke about what I thought was the most important part of this uh, during the 60-second rundown, but in terms of the Larry Calderon, the current head of the Boston Police Union, not to be confused with the former head of the Boston Police Union, who was a multiple alleged incidents of um, childhood pedophilia and abuse and assault, who within the police department was known to be doing that. However, they kept him on the force, continued to promote him, and of course elected him to be president. So this is not the same person. This is the person that I think replaced either him or uh, that, that person's predecessor. And he's talking about the, the morale problem. 
the feelings of the police, which is hilarious that in this moment we need to worry about the feelings of the Boston police officers. They feel bad. Reading his quote, it's extremely hurtful to continually hear the same rhetoric, not only of some anarchists from outside of Boston. Going to pause right there. Notice how it's always outside of Boston. Like I am viewed, doesn't matter that I've lived in the city for eight years now, I am viewed as an outside agitator. I'm not really from here. And for them, they think every protester is outside of Boston. Or again, using that language, not really from here, not one of us from outside of Boston, but from our own elected officials as well. Again, trying to make it so that an issue like defunding the police, which as I explained on the door, I had a nice 10 minute debate with someone about this, that we are not defunding the police because we think the police are bad people, or we think that the police are racist. We are defunding the police because we want to address crime. We want crime to go down. Everyone should be able to walk down their street and feel safe, whether it's daytime or nighttime. Everyone should be able to sit on their front porch and not worry about getting hit with a straight bullet. And spending $120,000 per officer, which is the median income of a Boston police officer, is not addressing crime. We have 30 police officers who cumulatively make $9.6 million. There is no one that can tell me that having 30 plus police officers all pulling in over a quarter of a million dollars each has anything to do with keeping us safe. And so, but they view it as, no, you're doing this because you're being mean to us. But the part to me that gets buried in these comments, and I'm glad I just happened to point it out, was that this person is appointed to the Massachusetts Peace Officers Standards and Training Commission post. And the island is just... Effing scored again. 3-1. My God. And so the purpose of this training commission is really a deflection, to be honest. It was passed as part of the watered-down, toothless police reform bill that some lawmakers embarrassed and compared to the civil rights era to create a commission, which is going to create a certificate to give to police officers, and then also hypothetically the process of taking away that certificate, but who do they have on it? They have on it the head of the Boston Police Union. Clearly, the head of the Boston Police Union, who is elected to increase the salary of, protect the jobs of police officers, should not be the same person responsible for looking at decertifying police officers. There was a conflict of interest directly. But these are the people who sit on the commission. That's why all these commissions are BS to begin with, even if they were given some tea. Uh, I'm going to transition to the video. I, I just see a bunch of questions. Um, if you just type in Bostopia News, uh, you can find me everywhere. Yep, I would go, yeah, Twitch, YouTube, because I have all these nice little visuals for you. It's much better. Um, I actually spend a lot of time in Salisbury, but I'm curious what you're talking about. Um, my, my news sources, I read the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald every day. I'm also on, uh, Politico's, like, Massachusetts email blast. It was run by Stephanie Murray. I don't know the name of the new woman. I apologize. This is Lisa. 
And also Master List is another good email list. I look at Commonwealth Magazine, Bay State Banner, The Dig, basically a lot of different sources. But okay, let's now go into this city council hearing. So this uh, Boston City Council hearing is about no uh, noise ordinances. Basically, people throwing house parties and other people getting mad and calling the cops on them. And so I have a lot of little clips from this. I'm going to let Ed Flynn break it down. I think part of this should be addressed seriously. I think the part of this is hilarious. And I think there's a lot of misdirected anger, mostly because of our housing policy, which you'll see some people start to understand and address during this, but they miss the larger point or they hit the point quickly and they pivot from it. So let's listen to Ed Flynn for a little bit, explain to us why we're having this hearing here today. South Boston and other neighborhoods across the city. As many of you on here or watching recall, Councilor Flaherty and I called for a hearing on this issue in the fall. At that time, we tried to sound the alarm on the potential for COVID-19 super spreader event as public health officials repeatedly warned that young people were driving the rise in COVID cases. We also talked about the quality of life issues they present for neighbors. But we also want to emphasize today that although this behavior increased during the pandemic and with our bars at limited capacity, this lack of respect for neighbors has been going on for years and enough is enough. Every Thursday to Sunday in South Boston, every Thursday to, to Sunday in South Boston, it is now like Mardi Gras or St. Patrick's Day weekend with 600 calls from Southie alone in one weekend re recently to the Boston Police Department. Two weeks ago, I went on a drive, drive around. Okay. Mardi Gras. I wish. I used to live in New Orleans. But, okay. House parties in South Boston, apparently. Now, my big complaint, because I remember in the fall when they were doing this, was the state and the city was simultaneously saying, go out to drink, go out to eat, but then getting mad and trying to say that because of COVID, you can't have people over your private residence. Which for everyone can kind of just understand that a virus is not going to operate differently just because you're spending money. And it points to the larger problem with not just Massachusetts, but the entire country's COVID response, which was that it was first and foremost treated as a political crisis, not a public health crisis. And the decisions that were made had a lot more to do with protecting, buffering, shielding the economy than passing actual policies, which would then make it so people could just stay home safely, didn't have to go. America tried to walk this quarantine, but also <clears throat> keep spending money plan. And so I was very critical when they were blaming the house parties while simultaneously trying to get people to go out back to the bars and restaurants in the fall. But okay, Ed Flynn is saying there's too many parties. Let's listen to Lydia Edwards address this. And then we'll move from there. Ba -ba -da -ba, ba -ba 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 -ba. There she is. Okay. Sponsors, excuse me, uh, Councillor Flynn, and I believe Councillor Flaherty uh, for this for this hearing and this really important conversation. I actually just had a great conversation with Rep. Holmes, and he also is concerned about the amount of parties that are going on and how loud they are. I I understand we live in a city, but we live in communities first. We live in neighborhoods first, and people uh, are you know you 
you're allowed to have a certain amount of liberty and freedom within your own home. But when your noise impacts my quality of life, um, the cleanliness of the streets and your concentrate, you know, th those are, that's when, um, you know, unfortunately we have to come in and talk about these things. So along with the, uh, looking at the increase in fines, which do go to the property owners, right? Uh, in many cases, that's the tenants who are doing this. I also think we should look at how we're measuring noise. And honestly, I mean, this, this is coming from a constituent. But he's wondering if the noise ordinance as it stands, which I think is 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., whether the whether that we should be allowing flipped, certain right? decibels that late. Uh, his suggestion is couldn't we consider a 9 p.m. cutoff for certain decibel levels versus the 11 p.m. one? Um, and I, I told him I'd bring it up. And honestly, I wonder if that makes sense because he's, you know, in his mind, 11 p.m. is really saying midnight. Let's be honest. And 9 p.m. is probably really saying closer to 10 or 11 anyway. So maybe we should consider an enforcement. Um, I don't. I, I know with fines we might have to go to the state house, but in terms of the time, we might be able to do that in our house. That's one thing. And then I think you know, um, for him, he was just I. Well, for him and for some people, they were a little irate because it, it's 70 decibels. I think it is for, you know, if it goes over 70 or 50. And and how is the average person supposed to measure what the heck that means? You don't really know. Right. You just know it's so loud you can't sleep. And um, so how are we really? And then I appreciate I went to the website and there were some real life examples, lawnmowers, construction, construction hours are really good, too. I think they might want to you might want to consider maybe shortening them. But um, those are things that I, I think we can do in house. Um, I don't know if there's an app on a phone that you could use uh, to measure decibels. You're not in your head, Chris. Is there an app? I don't know. But I, I think in terms of enforcing and defining what's loud and how long we let um, people be loud um, is, is important. And I'm not I'm not anti-partying. I enjoy a good gathering. I enjoy coming together and having a good time. Okay, I wanted to be fair and let him make that point. Um, I find the app on a phone to measure decimal levels just to be really funny. The idea of just neighbors holding their apps out and their phones, just trying to measure if it's okay to call the cops or not, just waiting for the dial to go one or two decimal levels. Hilarious. And the concept of fines was also brought up. So I'm still letting the council people set the stage. And the concept of calling the police, and I'm probably going to hit this once or twice, because the situation that we're dealing with is a lot of young people, probably students or in their early 20s, who are now just renting out properties, like the one I'm in right now, look at three people that I met on Craigslist. They're all packed in the South End. They're, again, undergraduate, graduate degree kids. They're partying. They're having a good time right next to someone that's lived there 30, 40 years, and that's their home. And because we're also atomized, there is no concept of community and neighborhood, the only button that we have to press in our society is call the cops, call somebody with a gun. That's it. The only mechanism that we have designed and built that people know of and that they view as working effectively, though clearly it is not, is if you have a problem with someone, call the police, have someone with a gun go over there. So instantly you kind of see the massive problem with that and why that is not effective, as we're, as we're seeing here. That it, one, it doesn't solve the problem. And two, it basically automatically heightens something to a life or death situation, getting someone with a gun involved. And part of the city council is trying to think of a different way, trying to maybe get like mental health workers to answer, or you know, the 311 program. Have a city official go out there because you do not need somebody with a gun to address something like an undergrad house party. You have RAs doing it in dormitories. And that's a, another issue that I want people to keep in their heads that I'm going to hit is that these are basically being used as remote dorms. 
but let, let's listen to a little bit about this 311 versus 911 system and why it's not working. Let's see. As much of a real-time solution, that's more of a, you know, just to be delayed. Um, but the reality is, you know, we, we do the best we can and we find a pretty fair amount of compliance. We do find people that just don't care and, and will, as mentioned, stop the party right, right back up uh, as soon as the police leave. And that's when we go back and we, you know, make people leave the house and we find people or we take out criminal complaints, which we did uh, last weekend to, to a number of, of addresses. Um, <clears throat> So, so that's that's pretty much the process. Three one one is not is not as much of a real time solution. That's more of a you know you got you, you send an email at the three one one and we kind of track that as it's a problem that keeps coming up. But it's uh, the, the real time issue is basically just batch mail operations on the two nine one one. So across the city, it's it's a challenge to keep up with on busy weekends. Uh, you know, regarding getting some more officers out there, we we do have a, uh, a class coming out of, of ninety four officers. Uh, so we we will plus up a, a little bit. Uh, that you know they. When you look at you look at the, the various districts and the various shifts, it, it doesn't doesn't add 94, 94 officers gets uh, gets absorbed pretty quickly in, into the uh, into the department without a huge noticeable increase, but it, it's still something. Uh, so so we'll we'll definitely have a few, a few more people in South Boston, a few more people in B two and B three to respond to these kind of calls. Uh, but but yeah, that's that's basically the process. We go out there and you know if if a warning seems to clear everything out, then then that's great. But if it's a problem that we've been back to this address a number of times, or it's every other weekend, or, or, or the officers, you know, get the impression that, that people aren't going to take it seriously. Uh, and then we stand by and try to empty it out as much as we can and, and either fine or criminally charge the uh, the people in charge and then uh, follow up with ISD in, in situations where it's really over the top. Okay. So the big highlight for me for that is the concept of how the 311 system, which is kind of like making a city complaint, really just as he was illustrating, just goes to a random inbox that then the police themselves monitor. So it creates the appearance of a different option, a different mechanism to report, again, things that you do not need somebody making a quarter of a million dollars a year and a gun to go figure out and to go tell them to knock it off. But the actual mechanism is just an empty inbox where the police are the ones monitoring it anyway. That's what you call a failed system. Because it does not complete the loop. The circuit still goes where you don't want it to go. Now, the next two people that I have for this, and then I'm going to start to kind of walk through this, are two of the neighbors. The people who are complaining, who are calling the cops on this. And we're going to start to get to the larger issues that people I just want in everyone's mind to think of. Is who owns these properties? having dorms next to residential areas. And whose fault is it? Is it the fault of the layout of that housing policy in Boston that is putting these groups next to each other? Or is it blamed on individuals, bad people? And let's, let's listen to how the, um, the neighbors and our great policymakers try to understand the differences between these things. public testimony, I should say. Ellie, are you with us? There are a couple of properties I've called on and, um, and, and things branch out from the parties. Saturday afternoon on Broadway is like the Vegas Strip. This, this is a community. As um, Councilor Edwards said, this is a community. This is a neighborhood. 
it's not a college campus. It's not a frat house. It's not a resort. And it's just out of control. And I love the idea of making the ordinance 9 p.m., if that can be done. I really love that idea. Um, I also think um, finding the tenants as well as the landlords. And definitely we do need to go after these landlords. They, they buy a property, they rent it out. They're not even from South Boston or Boston. They live in Newton and Middleton and wherever, and then they sleep at night and I'm dealing with their people. Um, so, and I, and I really strongly feel $500 is not enough. I think $1,000 the first loud party, 2000 3000 4000 the tenants get kicked out. Okay, she starts to go off the rails <laughs> with the tenants getting kicked out and all this stuff. But addressing your first point, this is a community, not a college campus. The reason that that is not true is because of how we have done our housing policy, which is to basically allow these massive universities where I think at some influx, like students make up like 25, 30% of like the flux population within Boston to basically treat our housing stock as surplus student dorms, where Northeastern, BU, BC, Harvard, Tufts, Emerson, Suffolk, everywhere, they have a limited amount of dorm space that they themselves own and provide. And then they say, go find housing. And so that is then absorbed within the city. And so while it would be great if we had housing policies, if we had demands on universities to pay more, you have Harvard sitting on a $40 billion endowment. You have all of these universities who have massive amounts, hundreds of millions, billions, tens of billions of dollars that they're just sitting on, that rather than using that to build new dormitories to build affordable housing, they are just letting the city absorb it. So then you have situations with this woman who is now next to her neighbors to what could be a fraternity, which I'm sure is real fucking annoying. <laughs> and the now let's let's talk about the the who owns the property, the landlords, because this is when she gets the closest to the point is that we have also allowed a housing system, which is not just to absorb the surplus student populations and have them live what are or were residential neighborhoods and communities, but we've also allowed landlords to buy up properties, dozens of properties all over the area, hundreds of properties all over the area. The largest commercial landlord is Blackstone the private equity firm, $600 billion, to just buy these properties and use them as just cash revenues, use them as investments. So while for her, this is a community, this is a neighborhood, for college campuses, they view it as an exterior dormitory, and for wealthy landlords, they view it as an investment opportunity. They don't care about your community. And she, and she hits that, she gets that point, that the people who own these properties do not give a shit about that surrounding area. And they're just filling it in with students on a treadmill year after year after year. And then letting them deal with the consequences. Letting the city have to pay for police officers to go over there 19, 20 times. So that is the deliberate choice in the effects of our housing policy, period. But because we don't think like that, we don't think to challenge these much larger systems, it instantly goes into punishment which is call the guy with the gun to go, and fines. The idea that you're going to get college kids, 18 and 19-year-olds, to go to bed at 9 p.m. is ludicrous. 
that is unrealistic. That is fantasy land. And I think everyone kind of gets that at the core. So you, you're going to you're going to just start issuing tickets to kids who are already six figures in debt to landlords who will either hold it up in court, not pay it, get around it. They're making so much money that a couple grand fines doesn't mean anything to their bottom line. But because we don't know how else to think about it structurally, we just go to punishments. And now I think she transitions to, again, first addressing the issue, but then losing the ball and starts blaming the people who live there. There's a lien on the property, just whatever you can do. I, I think we really need to strike hard. And this isn't just from COVID. I, I, I grew up here. This has been going on the last five, six, seven years. These people have absolutely no respect. There's trash everywhere. There's dog poop everywhere. I don't know where they grew up. Um, I, and like you said, Ed, they don't do this in Connecticut or yep. Schenectady or even Southborough, Westborough, whatever borough out in Western Mass. They don't do that there. So why are you doing it in my neighborhood? And thank you all for listening and thank you for bringing this up. So, I mean, it's very easy to like make fun of this person, but they are addressing what is a quality of life issue they're having. They're seeing their community being ripped apart by wealthy landlords and by college campuses that don't care, but there is not another outlet. So they're just blaming the kids and they're viewing it as this must be a individual problem. It's something about these kids, that kids today are bad. The kids today are behaving like this. Well, no. Not to get into like crime statistics from the 1960s, the 80s, but things were way worse in terms of how teenagers and people in their 20s acted. But because there isn't another person to take this out on, because there are these much larger forces, we just end up attacking each other. And you end up hearing that in the, uh, the next person as well. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Horrifying. I mean... There's, you know, there's the noise, but then there's like the public urination, the um, defecating on other people's property. And it's just like mind blowing. I actually compiled like a whole list and had them tell me exactly what they did. They call 911. They send an email to you guys. Um, and it's just it, it blows my mind to see the amount of properties that are being called on and the amount of times they're being called on. And there's no, um, currently it feels like there's no consequence because it's continuing. There's a many, many, many repeat offenders. <clears throat> and I have looked into the owners of these properties and many of them register as LLCs and they live nowhere near here. Many of them are absentee landlords. Um, a lot of the residents have tried to connect with these landlords just to give them a fair chance and say, Hey, can you talk to your tenants? And they've been ignored. Now, um, just last weekend, one of our elderly neighbors was accosted by one of these tenants because she had called 911 on them. The tenant came over and started screaming at a 63-year-old woman. And my fear is someone's going to end up getting hurt if things don't change. Okay. Again, horrible story of... Six-year-old woman getting screamed at, right? And this woman, I mean, her name is displayed on the screen, uh, Kristen. She identifies that, oh, the people who own all these properties, they're not even people. They're listed as LLC, Limited Liability Corporations. So these are just like ghost figures 
that just buying up properties where there is no system of accountability, she calls them absentee landlords. Again, they're mostly just owned by companies or it's purposely obfuscated so you don't know the actual individuals who own it. You don't know where they live. Could be international, could be national, could be Massachusetts, could be California. But then you see the larger consequences of having a system like that, which is now someone getting the cops called on them, because that's the only button that we have to press, now yelling at the person who grew up there their entire lives. And that's where the conflict is. That's where we see it visibly. But behind the scenes are the reasons that set those conditions. But because most of this is not talked about or explored, or our lawmakers do not go into this or state it clearly what is happening, they only are responding to people like Kristen, and the only button they have to press anyway is tell the cops to go hit someone, mostly because they also benefit from the current housing policies. Some of them love developers. Some of them think that there's no other system we could do, so you just try to get on their good side, work with them, and make concessions at the edges. But unless they're willing to name and to really explain that, that why that conflict, as horrible as it is, is the end result of a much larger domino effect that we have to start directly challenging the status quo of, now this will get fixed. Let's see if Kristen has any more points. Because this behavior and this attitude they have is just something I've never seen before. I've lived here for all my 32 years, and I've honestly never seen anything like it. The disrespect for... You know, our senior citizens, our disabled, our veterans, the people who have built this community, they've made this community and they want to move. They want to leave. They don't want to do it anymore. They're calling me crying. They're literally crying because some of them are on hospice. Some of them are sick. Some of them are dying. They can't sleep. And it, it completely breaks my heart because I want to stay here. I want to raise my daughter here. But it's become extremely difficult for all of us to have a good quality of life here. And we don't want that. We, we, we want to stay. We really do. And um, I just hope, I really hope that these fines can be passed because I don't think the tenants actually care. I think most of them are here for probably a year, then they move somewhere else. And, you know, that they're, they're not a part of our community in the sense where they actually care about their neighbors. So, I don't think handing them a fine is effective because I think they'd probably laugh and throw it away because they're not going to be there long. I think hitting the landlords where it hurts is where we're going to see effective change because then they may say, oh, maybe I should put in my lease agreement that they, there's no partying. And if there's partying, then they're going to be evicted. Okay. So do you see how she instantly goes to blaming the individuals again because that's just how we're taught in the society? of they're disrespectful or the other use or what she used i don't know we'll just go with disrespectful as it was the name so trying to blame the individuals who live there instantly goes to fines on them then hits it though says we need to go after the landlords however how she can see that is not that oh we need to make this so so financially untenable for these corporations that it is not actually worth them to treat this as an investment property that we need to start um, buying some of these properties making universities buy some of these properties to have affordable housing to have actual proper living spaces for their students and goes to have the landlords write in the lease you can't party is there anyone that thinks an 18 year old who is living with their friends for the first time, if the lease says you cannot party, 
that they just that that's going to happen that that is a realistic solution no it's the same with saying the 9 p.m ordinance no one after thinking about it for 10 seconds can actually think that that is going to solve the problem but because we don't view these things as much larger forces. We don't look at how housing policy has shaped all of this. We only blame each other and then try to use whatever punitive stick you can think of. I'm, I'm curious how Ed responds to this. I have a feeling he responds. To, does, I have a feeling Ed does not bring up the points I just made and instead feeds into it. I'll let you know that I truly, truly appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Kristen. Thank you for your leadership in the community. Um, next up is Terry. Okay, he just Terry. passes it. If you, want, if you can unmute yourself, you're up next. But, I mean, th that was as far as I went. I felt those two people kind of hit the larger points that I wanted to hit. But it's terrible. And as long as we only have the button of call the cops, call somebody who makes six figures with a gun to go over there, and you don't address housing policy and any realistic solution, you got this. So I normally I like to go nine to ten. That's what this endeavor is all about. Bruins third period did just start. It is also a holiday. So I'm gonna take some questions that I'm seeing from the TikTok. I just put in the request that will let me have TikTok on here. So for the TikTok people, I can like look up and hopefully I'll be able to get your chat there so I can address the questions more in the moment. I uh, can't say it enough. Follow me on Twitch, YouTube, or Facebook so you can get the visuals as well. You don't have to listen and then ask what is going on, what is Evan talking about. You'll, you'll get to see it all. Uh, scanning here. Uh, Julia, thank you for someone who is a great member of the Boston City Council. I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon. Ba -ba -da -ba. It's mostly people talking about she's never been to Las Vegas. Um, there are so many college and universities in Boston. Yes, there are. Uh, that's not just Boston, though. Housing racism is all of the United States. Absolutely. Doesn't nuisance law provide a civil recourse which would avoid police intervention? Um, I mean, maybe if you're viewing that as like repercussions, like a civil lawsuit, However, and I mean, the police officer kind of goes into this. The only mechanism we have is to push the button and the guy with the gun goes over there and knocks on the door. Like to solve the quote unquote problem in the moment, that is the only thing our society is designed. It doesn't matter really what your nuisance law or what civil suits exist or anything. Ultimately, though. None of this is going to change or get addressed unless you start addressing housing policy and then maybe really building towards some element of neighborhoods and communities, but increasing fines and you need to make it so it's not financially uh, sustainable for a corporation or a landlord to treat their property like an investment. However, <laughs> that's basically how everyone treats housing. And so it's hard for people to hit that on the head. But, all right. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you to the TikTok audience. Uh, we're still in soft launch. I have a lot of clips coming. I have some great artwork. Um, that's Some have come in, some have not yet. 
let's go Bruins. They're down by two. We'll see what happens. But besides that, take care, everyone. Have a great evening, okay? Bye.